This is episode number seven of the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. On this episode, we have Dan Baker. Dan is a strength and power coach, researcher, and educator. Dan has a PhD in sports science specializing in velocity-based training and strength and power training. Dan was the strength coach for the Brisbane Broncos for nearly 20 years and won league titles in 1997, 98, 2000, and 2006. Dan also serves as the president of the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. This podcast will discuss many aspects of velocity-based training protocols and his experiences with the technology over the course of 20 plus years. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please take a minute to rate us and give us a review. Among the many performance podcasts out there, some tend to be harder to find and by reviewing us and our podcast, it'll help others find us a little bit more easily. We hope you enjoy the episode. All right, Dan, thanks for joining us on the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast. Um, I had the pleasure of listening to you speak at a push band conference, which is was basically a velocity-based training conference uh, over this summer. Um, for those that don't know who you are and kind of what you've done, give us a little bit of a brief background of your coaching, your researching, and educating career. Um, I'm primarily a strength conditioning coach, and uh, back uh, it's like a sort of an arms race to get a good job. Um, so I early on I um, did a masters and that was under uh, Dr. Greg Wilson and uh, Professor Rob Newton. Uh, I knew known Professor Rob for a long time. He was my uh, tutor at undergraduate back in the eighties. Um, so he's a, a couple of years older than me. So uh, and then so I did a masters degree. And I got some good employment from that and then. Um, I did my PhD while I was working full time with a professional rugby team, so basically I did my PhD on them. Um, and uh, so, even though I have a PhD and like 40 something peer reviewed publications, I always, um, just till a couple of years ago, worked full time as a strength conditioning coach. Um, and I only lectured part time at university, sort of thing. So, I, I really am more of a strength conditioning coach person with a PhD. Um, so I work with uh, mainly professional rugby league, but also professional rugby union. Now, people might know there's a difference, but there is a big difference in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, they're both very popular sports, uh, but the different sports I work with, you know, track and field, powerlifting, uh, diving. Uh, that's Olympic diving, springboard and platform. Uh, field hockey. Uh, yeah, net- netball. Did various <laughs> sports. Um, but over the last 20 years, I, I basically concentrated on uh, working with professional rugby league because in Australia, professional football sports, we have four of them. We have rugby league, rugby union, Australian rules football and soccer. That's where the money is. So you're either working with the Olympic teams or you're working professional football sports because that's where the money is for a full-time job anyhow. Yeah. Um, and you've been using... Uh 
kind of velocity-based training as we kind of get into our main meat of the discussion. You've been using velocity-based training for nearly 20 years or so now. Um, can you give us a... Over 20 years. Oh, yeah. so, over, so over over 20 years, you've had a lot of years um, using kind of one one data stream or, or multiple data streams out of one technology. Um, can you give us an idea of why there has been a recent surge in kind of the use of this velocity-based training, uh, even though it's been around for so many years? Yeah, well, well first off, 20-something years ago, we used the uh, plyometric power system, which was a linear position transducer built into a Smith machine. And, and they were, in 1995 terms and 1993 terms, about $20,000 Australian back then. Um, and so only a few professional teams, my professional team, bought one, and the Australian Institute of Sport one had one, and the Queensland Academy of Sport, which is a provincial or state academy, had one. Um, they were very expensive, and obviously they limited to measuring that velocity in Smith machine exercises. So we mainly just use it on jump squats and bench press throws to get measures of you know velocity and power on those power exercises. But what's happened over the last probably eight or ten years with more portable versions such as Tendodyne first, and then Gymaware. And then with the accelerometers first, myo test, and then um, you know now push is we have a lot more versatile uh, things that we can attach to free weights, uh, which is a big thing, and the cost has come down. So we get a push now; it's two hundred eighty-nine US. I mean, wow! Uh, if you go back twenty years ago, the plyometric power system cost uh, fifteen thousand US <laughs> for one, and push is two hundred eighty-nine. So that prevalence, that ubiquitous of the devices uh, has led to a big upsurge and also the fact that, you know, 20 years ago we were mainly just measuring the velocity and power in the what I call power exercises, you know, our power shrug jumps or, or clean pulls, our jump squats, bench press throws. And over the last probably eight or so years, the Spanish have started to show that, hey, we can use this stuff measuring strength as well and uh, look for changes in velocity relating to changes in uh, 1RM or any measure of strength. It just doesn't have to be down at the power end or the spectral. So that's two reasons, the price and uh, therefore it's ubiquitousness and the Spanish research saying just don't look at power exercises, look at uh, the heavy strength stuff as well. Yeah, and, and you kind of mentioned how um, that over the years that your use of it has expanded to more strength type of exercises versus just only power. So um, has there been any other, any other ways that your use of the training or velocity-based uh, training has developed over the years or evolved over the years? Uh, no, I think it's just organic like that. As we have more devices, we can you know, put them on more exercises in, in the session and more athletes. Again, price is the big thing. Um, and uh, w once we start measuring stuff, we start analyzing and, and planning and looking at things. And you know, as coaches, we use our eye a lot. Oh, he looks or she looks a bit tired today. Doesn't have the same snap in her lips. But now we're starting to quantify it accurately and saying he or she doesn't have the same snap or velocity. Yes, it's ten percent down or twelve percent down. And so we used to use our coach's eye a lot, but now we're quantitating it a lot better. Um, Basically, and like I said, we can put on a lot more exercises and do a lot more things now. Yeah, and so that I, I'm going to kind of jump a couple of questions here on my sheet. 
is that you, you mentioned one thing about using your coach's eye. And lately, at least what I've seen, is that there's this idea that technology and sports science gets in the way of a coach's intuition. Um, and, and I agree that those points, at certain points, it definitely can if you're only looking at the numbers. Um, but also, I do think it can kind of guide intuition um, and help a coach's eye as it's developing. Um, you know, maybe kind of earlier in their career, did you, uh, how have you been relying on velocity-based training and, and how you've been de developing your coach's eye and intuition with this technology? Or maybe give me your side of that debate, I guess. Yeah, oh, well, you, you, I always say to if you've got a push band and, and you're coaching an athlete, don't look at the, in the real time at the data coming up on your iPad or iPhone. Look at your athlete, coach your athlete. The data will be there for you when the set's over and you debrief the athlete and then you can back up what you saw with the data. Um, so, you know, coach your athlete, then look at the data. The data will confirm what you saw normally uh, and what the athlete felt. Now, uh, early on, um, we, we always just use it, like I said, for power exercises, jump squats and bench press throws. And the guys feel flat or they you know, had a hard game or training schedule. You see those differences in their scores. And the coach will come and say to me, they looked a bit flat out in the practice field today, and I said, yeah, well, you know, their velocity or power measurements are down 5 or 6% on this time last week, and he go, mm, yep, okay, I better uh, change my field session for, uh, you know, tomorrow or the next day, and they'll freshen them up for the weekend. So the coaches who use their eye could see it, and then they just use the velocity data to confirm or otherwise what they saw, because they're good coaches, their eye works. So it doesn't replace, you know... It, a coach having a push band doesn't make you uh, automatically a good coach it just helps you make better more informed decisions about what you're seeing anyhow um, it, yeah, that's why I don't often use the term velocity based training uh, velocity assists training you, you're seeing the stuff and planning training and it sort of just confirms one way or the other or reflects what you're doing um, you know if you're in a hard training phase your velocities with any sort of given weight will be slightly decreased because you know you're overreaching. But as you start to freshen up, they'll come back to normal and probably exceed. So, with velocity sort of reinforces to good coaches what they're seeing. Is my opinion. It doesn't take the place of a good coach. It, you know, uh, it just. To give me an example. When I first looked at weights, you know, it was hard to get weights in Australia 30 years ago, 40 years ago. My dad got a piece of pipe two paint tins and put concrete in the end of the paint, uh, paint tins, put a pipe between them, let it hard, harden. So we had these concrete paint tin weights that were the same weight. There was no progressive overload. So you could lift that weight 10 times or eight times if you couldn't. Once we got weights, you could increment up five or 10 pounds. Then we got a way of measuring how strong we we're getting. So just a better way of measuring versus, you know, old school. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense. No, it make, makes absolute sense. And I think... That especially with say younger coaches, um, you know, and and any coach for that matter. But I think younger coaches who have kind of grown up or, or kind of started their career in the uh, kind of time of where technology is far more uh, usable and far more easily to get your hands on that they they do need to develop the coaching side maybe first and the technology side second, or at the very least concurrently. Um, so yeah, yeah, I 100% agree, mate. It, it, you need to get a coach because anyone can get a program off the internet now, but it doesn't mean you're being coached. You know, you can download a program from a gazillion websites. It's a good program, but you're not being coached. I could go download a, a Lewis Simmons Westside program 
but I ain't been coached by Louis Simmons. I could go down and download a Greg Knuckles program. I ain't been coached by Greg. I've just downloaded it. I can, you know, I can download one of your programs or Mike's programs, but I ain't been coached by you just because I got off the internet. So it's the coaching that is the most important thing. Right. The program reflects with the coach or uh, jives with the coach, but you know, it's the coach that helps the most. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of get into more uh, velocity-specific type of questions, um, when when you're using velocity-based training, and we have, luckily, we have access to the same equipment uh, or at least velocity-based metrics. Um, when when we see that we when we use it anyway with our athletes, we see intent to move whatever bar or weight they're trying to move. Their intent shoot through the roof basically solely because they can quantitatively see their output. Um, are there, say, that, that is one benefit uh, of the push band. Have you noticed the same thing? And what, oh, would you, yeah. what, would you, what would you say to say that point of just purely intent, just for the use of intent alone? Yeah, well, it makes the athlete accountable for their own performance. So, you know, an athlete, you know, you should be doing a, a set, if the set is maximal intent, not maximal effort, but intent to move the bar fast, and you're getting measured, and you're being held accountable for a previous performance, you know, they're accountable. And, you know, if they don't get up equal at their score or what they're supposed to get, they need to go to the big house of mirrors, have a good long, hard look at themselves. Um, so I think it's really good for accountability and also training status. I mean, an athlete might have incredible intent, but they're just tired that day, they had a hard training week. Um, uh, I just squatted before my third squat session this week, didn't go as heavy, but because I knew, you know, I'm a bit fatigued, but you know, I'm looking with maximal intent, I don't have the same velocities I did on Monday, I was a little bit fresher, but my intent was the same. Um, but you know, it wasn't far off, but you know, it's a bit of accumulative fatigue. So intent and accountability are one of the main things we measure it with a, a push or any velocity measuring device. Sure. And, you know, in terms of, say, the intent of movement or, say, effort, um, when, you, when, you have a, when you have a squad of guys, say, on your team, do you see a lot of competitiveness come out in the weight room as well? Do you think that's an advantage uh, that, you know, some one guy's trying to beat another guy or whatever it may be? <laughs> My whole system is based on that. <laughs> 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 we'd have a whiteboard for, we'd have a whiteboard for the top three we had, and he'd also put the loser on the whiteboard as well for the prison bit <laughs> so, if you couldn't get the top three don't lose yeah <laughs> yeah you pretty much you pretty much don't want to be at the bottom so because yeah, that, that that engenders competition between the bottom three or four you know so, yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah I, I love that athletes who are competitive and I work with professional and Olympic type athletes they're competitive um, and you know, even for fun, you know that the, the loser buys coffee or buys sandwiches at lunch. It's just you know, yeah. I mean, these guys make hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's a bit of fun. Yeah. Uh, but even for the amateur athletes, yeah, they just uh, they want to win. Uh, and what we're teaching them about this is is a competitive situation, being able to uh, raise um, arousal when they need to and dig deep. Physiologically, when that when they need to, uh, so it's not just about you know intent and accountability and numbers. It's about you know the psychological training 
to when you are under pressure, this is your last set. If you don't get this score, you're buying coffee or you're doing gym cleanup, whatever the group has decided is the outcome of this little contest. Then you have to find that gear. You have to find that arousal level if it's within your capability and get that score. Yeah, and that's right. Yeah, and I think you know, in speaking to you prior to this today, um, you know, you said, you know, I think largely, largely uh, because of the what you've done with your team is the culture, and I think if you could touch on maybe the culture of your team and maybe why why that velocity based training works well in your culture, something that you know you've built along the way. Yeah, I don't work for the team anymore. I finished a few years ago, but oh, okay. the thing is, uh, it was always a one of the top teams that their, their goal is uh, top four finish, you know, to make the uh, full playoffs. So being the top four in the whole league, not not in a region or district, going into the playoffs every year. That's their goal every single year. Um, so it's very competitive. Uh, you know, had great coaches, great support, and uh, it was just a very competitive situation, and uh, which we wanted. Uh, and you know. If you're doing a jump squat and there's no measure and a guy jumps, you know, big deal. If we're all jumping with 60 kilograms or 100 kilograms, there's nothing there. But if we're measuring that, there is. Because when we're lifting heavy for a 3RM or a 5RM or something, there's a measure. One guy did 150 kilograms, one did 147. So the guy's 150 beats it. But what you're doing jump squats with 100 kilos, if there's no metric to measure velocity or, or, or power, you know, guys, they have a bit of a go, but they don't go flat out, you know, it's because... There's no accountability. As soon as you got a measure there, you know, lock up your daughters. The boys are getting loose, <laughs> and it's competitive, sort of thing. So yeah. um, th that's what we wanted. Every situation where we where we won the competition, we would measure stuff. So whether it's sprints or aerobic stuff, you now we're measuring somehow. Um, and, and you know, for strength exercise, we can just measure on kilograms and reps, and for our velocity and for our power stuff back then we were measuring you know the velocity and power so our jump squats and, and bench press throws and so forth um yeah yeah and, and absolutely. so we felt about competitiveness competitiveness yep and um you know back back to say uh, velocity metrics in the weight room and you did hint a little bit at this prior as predicting performances in the weight room uh how are how are you using uh, velocity metrics to predict performance in the weight room and maybe how you're adjusting training on the fly based on those uh, those out those numbers that are uh, kind of being spit back out at you yeah well one of the things is a lot of people and push out this you know you can try and predict your one RM from a few velocity tests it's not overly accurate it's a good correlation but it always overestimates you it's like the the reps to fatigue test you know you do the 225 bound Pound uh, bench press test and get 20 reps and try to predict your one RM. They're, they're not accurate. You know, it's not really that accurate. What you use velocity for is getting measures that are individual for you. So I know, for example, if and a lot of good squatters who are doing one and uh, three quarter times body weight, their one RM speed is about 0.25 uh, meters per second average velocity. Now that velocity is also the velocity of their last rep before failure. If they're doing a five RM, their fifth rep will be 0.25. If they're doing eight reps, their last rep will be about 0.25. It might be a little more, 2.7, something like that. But so therefore, 
Uh, and if you also look at a weight, say you looked at uh, 100, um, uh, my best with 180 kilograms on the first rep is 0.5 meters per second. Um, and if I do five, uh, it's you know 0.28 or something. The last rep. Now, if I get out an 80 and my first rep is not 0.5, and I do three reps, it's telling me where my strength level is. So if my first rep is 0.4, I know I'm uh, maybe five or six percent down on my strength. So it's it's looking at what you normally get with a weight on the first rep, and also looking at the velocity the last rep in a set to tell you how far you're away from fatigue. So I'll give you an example. When I traveled over to London to lecture, I did a workout at five on 185 on the squat. Um, yeah, trained over in England. It's a long flight from Australia, it's a 37 hour commute. Come back, I landed on a Saturday afternoon. I uh, tried to squat Monday morning, so I got a lot of jet lag. As I warmed up, my velocities at each warm-up set from 120, 140, uh, 160 were all 20% down on normal. So I planned to go to 175 for five. But I got to 160 and said, that ain't happened. I just put 165 on and did two sets of three. So that's a case of some extreme travel affecting your strength. Or you're going to have extreme sickness or something like that. Extreme workload, uh, university, college workloads. Normally, that velocity will reflect your periodization of training, but it does help you make better decisions in those extreme decisions when the athlete's been under a lot of workload or travel or sickness or study load. Um, and, and, and that's how you can use it on the fly between what you have programmed and what's the reality that day. Sure. And, you know, uh, you've worked a lot with. Um you know, very good, competent squatters, uh, you know, plus, you know, 1.5 times plus body weight. I'd say most guys you've probably worked with are that or above. Um, now, what about, say, a starting athlete, maybe younger or older, doesn't necessarily matter, I guess, um, where they're not very consistent with their speed. Maybe they have yet to kind of ingrain their good technique in the yeah. squat or any strength yeah. movement. Is it a lot harder to predict uh, based off of their velocities than if they were a good squatter otherwise? Yeah, yeah, it is. Because uh, those type of squatters who aren't really uh, consistent, haven't had that uh, two or three years of experience, their 1RM speeds tend to be about 0.35. They basically haven't learned to grind out of max. They get a bit, bit heavy, this feels hard, throw it off their shoulders, or, you know, fail. You know, they give up. Um, they haven't learned to embrace the grind, we could say. So we just accept that, that the low-level squatters, their failure speed tends to be in the 0.3 somethings, 0.35, 0.37, you know, there's variations. Sure. So that's why we need to work it out across training. If you put a push band on or some velocity device, you know, a couple of different training sessions, we look at different weights. You know, this is what they normally get with, say, 80 kilograms in the first rep, this is what they get in the fifth rep, and then maybe 90. So you just gather some data about what is normal for that athlete on their first rep and their last rep with different weights. And then in season, you can say, hey, this athlete normally with 80 kilograms is 0.6. Today, they're 0.5. I might back off their, uh, if I program in their top weight as being, uh, say, 220 pounds, 100 kilos, instead of doing that, I might just drop it back to uh, 200 pounds, 90 kilos. So you, you, you can 
make those adjustments in season, even for those guys, by looking at one of their last warm-up sets. So I always say to people, just look at you know a weight that's around 60 or 65% as a last warm-up set, even if you only do one or two reps at it, and use the velocity of that to compare to last time. So if someone always has a last warm-up set of 80 kilograms on a squat, if they're not a good squatter, then we can start to see, oh yeah, they're in good shape today, we can bump the weight up, they're normal, we'll keep what it's programmed, or they're you know, five or 10% down, we'll, we'll drop that weight back a few percent, a few pounds or kilos. So just making those little adjustments, is still, it needs to be individualized. I can't say this is the figure that everyone should be. Um, you know, it's 60%. Uh, we have some figures, but you know, it's a living, breathing thing. Yeah. Uh, and and so if you're, um, you know, going along and say you're, uh, is, is one, I guess uh, what I'm asking is, is one rep a value of 0 0.03 meters per second roughly, or is it 0 0.06? Um, so say if you're... Uh, yeah, it depends on the person, but it, it, it's somewhere in that zone. So it depends on the level of squat you are. So 5% is for low-level squatters about 0 0.06, and for higher-level squatters it can be 0 0.06 up to, say, 0.1. So 5% could be construed as being two reps. Okay. So we could say, yeah, 0.03 is one rep, yeah. But it, it, it's sometimes not so linear. You, you might have someone, first three reps in a set, they have virtually no velocity decline, and then the fourth and fifth reps, they really start dying and drop off a lot more. So they might be doing... You know, 0.5 for the first rep, then 0.49, then 0.48. Then all of a sudden, the fourth rep is 0.4, and the fifth rep is 0.36, and, and that's then. So it's not sort of linear across the set always. Sure. It could be just a sharp drop-off. Is, is that? And, and that's why I say to people, you, you just can't linearly extrapolate uh, all the time. And, um, and, and not to... Uh... N not to say pick on push band, it's just my reference point. Is that why the test may be thrown off quite a bit? Is that it's not linear, not very predictable? Uh, well, 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 velocity and strength are linear, but in zones. So from 80% on, it's linear. And then between 60 and 80, it's linear, but in a different linear, if you know what I mean, if yeah. that makes sense. Yep. And then it's under 60 or 65 percent don't even bother because there's so much deceleration so you if you want to make a good prediction of one rm i wouldn't look at anything below at the lightest 75 percent i would say to people if you choose three loads choose 80 86 and maybe 92 or 93 basically a seven rm a five rm and a three rm look at the first rep of each of those and then you bring out predict one hour end speed. Sure, and of it, just like just like say a general calculation, the closer you get to a true one RM, the more accurate you can potentially be. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, any of the uh, one RM predicting things based on velocity, if they include, I mean, uh, Dr. Greg Hatt's got a publication coming up. He's not the main author's co-author, and they used. Uh, 20, 40, 60% predict, and it overpredicts one RM squat by 30 kilograms. If you had 20, 40, 60, and 80, it overpredicts by, I think, 20 kilograms. And 20, 40, 60, and 80, and 90, it overpredicts by uh, still a fair bit. But what you need to do is wipe out 20, 40, and 60. Right. 
that's, that's what's throwing it off potentially. And 90 only, uh, then you might, you know, you, you probably need three low lines for a line of best fits. That's why I say 80, you know, 86, 92 or 80, 87, 95 or something like that. Sure. Then you've worked out one RM linearly, you know, line of best fit. Okay. And but we, 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 we see in uh, any, again, in, in uh, Dr. Greg's had this research again, the squatters, their one RM velocity when they measured it, directly was 0.24 all good strong squatters and they were 1.75 times body weight squatters all good squatters are got 1.75 tend to be 0 0.23 0 0.24 0 0.25 something like that less strong squatters who are under one and a half tend to be 0 0.35 0 0.34 something like that so we already roughly know what your velocity is going to be if you're a good squatter and you can embrace the grind it's going to be the mid twos. If you're a shitbag squatter, it's going to be in the mid threes. Uh, <laughs> you know. No, that's all right. Um, all right, yeah, yeah, that that does clear up a little bit more and gives, I think, a little bit more uh, uh, insight to prediction of maximal strength or one RMs and uh, anything. Now, you talked about squatting. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to jump a question quite yet, but you talked about squatting. Maybe just give a a brief idea of what. Uh, coaches can look for in say uh, the power clean, hang clean, power snatch, and so on. In terms of just general velocities, yeah. um, one of the things we've seen uh, doing a lot of work with the push is if athletes are doing a power clean, uh, you know, the, the peak velocity you can look at both peak and average velocity. The peak velocity tends to be around you know 1.3, 1.4, something like that. But what we're seeing on the 1M RM power clean is almost always the average velocity is around one meter per second. Because some research from Brazil shows that when you do jump squats, for example, power output is maximized with that, when we're talking average power here, or mean power, at a velocity of one meter per second. So power clean is, you know, it's a, a, a maximal power leg exercise. And I think John, when we were there at uh, at Athletic Lab, uh, the the guy did the one RM power clean. I've got data right here in front of me, fortuitously. He's uh, one RM with 150 kilogram, 330 pound uh, clean. Yep. Was 1.03 meters per second average velocity and 1.42 peak velocity. And we tend to see that in a lot of people at their one RM level. But if we go back to maybe 97%, 95%, we see the velocity is a bit higher. It really drops off fast from about 97%. So someone could be 1.10 average velocity and 1.55 peak velocity at 97%, put two and a half game more on the bar, and that hit one RM. Yeah. And we call, sort of call it falling off the cliff. You know, they're, they're standing on tippy toes on the cliff at 97%, and one RM is just they're sliding down off that cliff. They're on a banana peel down. So, you know, we, we see, at, you know, weights around, you know, uh, 80%, uh, you know, some, you know, 75, 80%, those sort of regular training weights. The average velocity is of, you know, 1.2, 1.15. The peaks are 1.5, 1.6 meters per second. So one of the ways we know sometimes um, an athlete has gone to 1RM on a power clean is if their average velocity is around that 1.0 meters per second. So uh, if you remember, when we were at Athletic Lab, the guy 
I said, I think I only do 135. Gets to 135K. So no, that's 1.16 average velocity. You got more in yet? Yeah. Yes. 140 is 1.11. 145, 1.10. 150, it's 1.03. Yep, you're at max yep. now, mate. So it helps us guide what is the max. Yeah, and and to kind of go back to that that uh, coach's eye point, that that's assuming technical proficiency. So I, I think is, yeah. it, is that right? Yeah, and I'll give you another example. Well, when I was in Sheffield uh, last month in England, so one of the guys he hit a squat, two hundred twenty-one kilos. That's like it's almost five hundred pounds. No belt, no wraps, no knee sleeve, just totally raw. Then we're doing hand cleans. He just got one thirty with a 1.09 and missed 132, but his velocity was still 1.09. We said to every coach in the room, did he miss that based on strength or on technique? And everyone said, technique, the bar's out in front of him, you could see it. Now obviously squatting 221, we know from our ratios of weightlifting, he should be able to clean that, but it's a technical thing, and the velocity reinforced that. He'd imparted enough velocity to the bar for it to be high enough but it was out in front, so we couldn't catch it. So it's again, every coach's eye could see that. Every coach in the room could see it. And then we said, here's a velocity. What did that tell you? Every single coach, he got the bar high enough, it's out in front. So the velocity just reinforced the coach's eye and told us, you should be able to clean that weight. We know from your strength level you can. The velocity is telling us the bar is going high enough, it's landing out in front. That's a technical thing. Yeah. Um, so to kind of move move on in questions here, um, you, you did mention very briefly here on this one, but um, are you and how are you using velocity-based uh, metrics uh, to help determine readiness of the athletes or freshness uh, going into, say, uh, uh, games or even during, say, a heavy, uh, heavy training phase? Yeah, um, well, I just always, in heavy training, we just look at what they're lifting. Now, in any exercise, compared to last week or compared to when they're fresh, that that's easy. As a readiness thing, we always just do a jump squat uh, where I work uh, with an empty barn, and that would be two or three days for a game. You can't really change anything then, because what that is reflecting is the workload of the previous week. And we try and use the analogy of, uh, if I want to be fresh on a certain day, I have to start uh, deloading them seven or nine days beforehand. You can't get to two days out and say, oh, you know, my, my readiness scores, what do I do? It's, it's too late. Yeah. You know, it's, like a, it's like a big semi-trailer turning a corner, but the cabin might be around the corner, but the rest of the, the, rest of the truck is still turning the corner. You know, it's still on the other side. Yeah. So uh, your head might be fresh, but your legs aren't. Yeah, so when, One of the things, well, at Surfing Australia the other day, we were down there, and they're, they're going to look at getting pushed just for, you know, guys and girls there, they, they might surf four or five hours a day. They're coming to the gym, and you may have something planned. So they're going to start putting, uh, hopefully, uh, a push on, do three uh, jump squats with the empty dowel rod and look at peak velocity and also two or three chin-ups and look at the average velocity. Just compare that. Say, okay, maybe I surf four hours, my arms are shot, um, my velocity is down 8 or 10% on, a, on, a, on my normal pull-up or chin-up uh, score. So, you know, the coach then can maybe... Uh, decrease the, the amount of upper body he had planned, but maybe the jump squat's saying the legs a little bit fresh, because you know, what there's maybe fatigue from is all the paddling, or vice versa. Yeah, and... So, we've got different ways of, of you know, just a couple simple 
test this, you know, do two chin-ups and three jumps, <laughs> takes you, what, a minute? And then you've got to score to uh, change training. And that, and that works really good in a, a sport like uh, surfing where and a few other sports or tennis where you don't really know where you, how long you're playing. You might win pretty quick or it might go three hours. There's a training session planned the next day. So, you, you know, it's not like a game of football where it's always 80 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever. And we know they always run this bar. You know, certain sports, are, the, the training can take longer or the competition can take longer. Yeah. Now, with the dowel rod test or PVC pipe test with the jump squat, yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually did that when you were here. I was uh, the guinea pig for that one. And you 3.77, know, wasn't it, Mike? What's that? Well, you, you were 3.77, weren't you? I, I thought it could have been. I thought I was three flat, but I'm not sure. It could have been oh, three. Well, okay. uh, <laughs> hey, I'll claim that, though. If that's a good score, I'll take it. Uh, but uh, so I guess yeah. What what are the ranges that you'd like to see on that uh, unweighted or, or PVC pipe uh, squat test? Yeah, I think that's a really good simple test. So my general recommendation is anything over three point five tends to show an explosive athlete, um, and three point one is just you know an average athlete. Oh, I was so definitely. I think I was definitely three seven seven then. <laughs> uh, Lachlan James just published some research, for example, on mixed martial arts fighters, high level and low level. The high level fighters, you know, guys with higher ranking, were 3.77. The low rank guys were 3.27. So that tells us something. More explosive guy probably win more fights by knockout and win them early. Yeah. <laughs> um, this average for the Australian sevens rugby team that went to Rio Olympics was 3.9. And sevens is a bit more explosive form of rugby. So we, we see that explosive athletes tend to be high threes or more. Um, you know, that can be the low fours. Lower, you know, aerobic and, and less explosive tend to be lower than 3.5. You know, 3.2, 3.3. They're still okay score. And, and Joe Public is, you know, 3. 3.0, 3.1, 2.9, um, something like that. I don't mean 45-year-old men. I mean, like, you know, Young males, females. Yeah. yeah so if you if you wanted, could you you could essentially use that at a part of a ready to score to determine uh, fatigue, maybe cumulative fatigue over the course of a week or months or so on. You could essentially use that test as a part of that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think it's a, the easiest, simplest test. I mean, a lot of people have you know, they want to do this RSI and all that. Hey, three jumps, put a down rod on your shoulders, look at peak velocity monitor it you do that every at the end of every warm-up it's such a simple test then you start collecting data and you look at that data well when when he's done this much or she's done this much training the scores drop down or this much training doesn't affect them but this you know the extra 10 percent does so you start just gathering data and you can make informed decisions then about future training content and peaking that athlete or getting that athlete in the best shape for important matches or tournaments you know, rather than, oh, I think I should do this, or I should use this Russian peaking cycle, blah, blah, blah. You know, it, we make informed decisions about that individual based on a multitude of velocity tests and looking at those velocity scores in relation to the previous one, two, three, and four weeks training. Sure. And uh, to kind of uh, move along here, your velocity prescription 
based uh, on the off-season relative to the in-season. How, how does that change, um, you know, between those two types of seasons? There's not much. It's just velocity will just reflect your total workload. Uh, so okay, yeah. You know, so you got. I don't let velocity. With me, velocity will reflect the periodization I'm doing and the workload the athlete's under. So I expect it to drop down certain weeks. You know, they've had a hard. Uh, say the team plays five days apart with a travel. You know, flying to the other side of the country. You can't expect that they have their best velocity. It's, you know, what, what is your allowable decrease? So you'll know that certain weeks are going to be down 4 or 5%. Fine. It's just reflecting something. But when it comes to the important games, uh, you know, playoffs and things like that, you want them at their best. You want them at 100% or more. So, again, if you're a coach, don't let velocity, you know, dictate everything. It's a reflector of some things. It's a reflector of your plan and what the athlete's been under. So, uh, you know, I, there are certain weeks where the athlete's not fresh. I expect them to get like 97% of their best or something like that because they're not fresh. But when they're fresh or had an adequate recovery, we want to be 99 to 100 something plus percent. So, you know, I've got data where we've been the, the championship playoff and um, our velocity scores during bench press throws are. 110% compared to our best from the preseason because we'll really taper down the volume in those last couple of weeks because you know, we're in the big game. So the guys are super fresh, they're 10% better than they were at the end of the preseason. But I expect that. And you know, at the end of the preseason, you've got a bit of residual fatigue. You've been training you know, 12 times a week, lots of contact and smash all the time. Uh, so maybe it's a little bit artificially low velocity score there but you know again it's reflecting what the athlete's under no sure I I guess I guess what I was getting at more so was uh, I guess the volume so one one thing you alluded to um, when when you spoke here was that you'd basically take uh, say for example an 8 RM or 6 RM whatever it may be and basically cut that in half so whatever the velocity Decline. Correct. Yep. Yes. So, could you touch yep. on uh, that that idea relative to the in season? Yeah. So, what what, what we've seen from uh, Spanish research is that if uh, a set for the lower body for squats stops with a twenty percent velocity decline, which is equivalent to doing only half the amount of reps, so doing five reps with a ten RM or three with a six RM, if we do that, we get very little lactic acid buildup but we maintain strength. Uh, that's a key thing. And we it takes us quicker to recover, obviously. If we go the full RM or even two-thirds, if we do eight reps and a 10 RM, there's still a large lactic acid buildup, there's still more muscle damage, and it can take us maybe three days to recover. Whereas we know if we do a 20% velocity decline, we are fully recovered within 48 hours. So that's an important thing. So 20% velocity decline for the lower body, and about 30% for, for bench press and upper body. So if, if you allow, know that, you know you can schedule a heavier strength day early in the week because you don't have, a, uh, where you have 20 to so percent velocity decline for lower body, 30 or a little bit more for upper body because you'll recover quicker anyhow. Then the second workout of the week, 
aim for even less velocity decline. On that second day of the week, my power training day, we only look for roughly uh, 10% velocity decline. So there's minimal uh, physiological damage done. There's less lactic acid, there's less uh, protein degradation. So by using velocity declines within a set, or knowing what the how many reps to prescribe based on on that, uh, we can still lift fairly heavy in season. We don't have to worry about it. So you can work up to three reps at a six RM in season. You can recover from that fairly quick because the velocity decline will only be twenty percent. Your time and attention is low. Um, so you don't have to be scared about lifting heavy weights in season. Yeah, and, and I always did it. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think a lot of people. A lot of coaches uh, shy away from that, but but I think it might be a short-term gain for a long-term loss when you look at how long yeah. a lot of sports seasons are. Um, you're yeah. you're, you're going to drop off well, really quickly. Basketball season. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, what you think? If strength training got you a certain vertical jump and a certain you know dominance on the court in the first three weeks, and then you stop doing it, come to playoffs, you, you got nothing. You know, and football, it's it's a collision sport. Uh, you know, our football season, our rugby seasons here are thirty-something weeks. So if you backed off the weights in week two, yeah, you're feeling fresh for week three and four. But after that, you know, big house of mirrors, mate, you're getting smashed. Yeah, you know, like because it's you know we we can't wear pads. We're to build our own pads. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and it's... we build our pads by lifting heavy weights and and you know stuff like that. So. We make our own pads. If we stop doing that, <laughs> what, what padding does the joint have? You know. So it, yeah, it's it's interesting too because I've I've experienced this in a team setting. Is that um, you know detraining and fatigue have the same result of decreased performance. So I think it, it becomes hidden. I think when people start to see detraining occur, they think that's accumulation of fatigue when it's really not, and so they want to detrain even more. So I, it's kind of this vicious cycle that I've seen before that really you don't want to get caught in. No, no, it's, you want to keep, you know, you, you work out a process and, and say we will perform week in, week out doing this training load and then when we make the playoffs, then we'll still keep training but we'll just decrease even the gym load. So instead of doing 50 minute workouts, we'll do 35. You still keep the stimulus there. And there, that's when the athletes start to feel fresh. And then, you know, my whole idea of a taper is when we won championships, that week we didn't squat. <laughs> <laughs> That's there, a... There's your taper. <laughs> and we do one RM bench presses that week and, and one or two or three RM cleans or jerks. Guys, because it's low volume. And, right. uh, you know, there's no, the time and attention's low. Um, and guys feel aggressive lifting big weights, you know, they, they smack up a, the PB from the preseason on the bench. I feel good, you know, I, I, we reduced training, I just lifted the same weight I did, you know, 30 weeks ago. Damn, I feel good. And they smack it up cleans. Oh, that's a PB clean, I only did two on that the preseason, I just did three today. Their mind is fantastic then, you know, they're, they're going into this game uh, full of aggression. Again, lock up your daughters, you know, board up your shops. Here come the Huns to, to pillage the world because they're feeling good. So. I think keep lifting weights in season, but do it with intelligence. Don't go to max effort all the time. Stop at 20% velocity decline for the lower body or 25% occasion. Uh, you know, something like that. Because uh, normally on the lower body, 40% or more means you've trained to failure. 
Right, so, right. Velo- velocity decrement. Yeah. 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 So, uh, irrespective of how many reps, whereas upper body uh, trained to failure on the bench press, you normally have a velocity decline somewhere around 55, 60%, more than 60%. So, because, for example, on bench press, your failure rep could be, say, 0.15. So, if your first rep was 0.45, you know, there's a big velocity decline. Right. Uh, yeah. So we want to stop that set, you know, when, for example, in bench press, maybe when it gets to 0.3 or 0.28, something like that, that's, that would represent, uh, if it stopped at 0.3 on the bench press, that would represent a 33% velocity decline from 0.45. Right. For example. Yeah. Um, and that would be, you're still two or three reps away from failure. Uh, but, yeah, in saying that too, I don't mind, I think in season, upper body is less detrimental to go to failure every say three weeks than it is for the lower body you know we never go to failure on the lower body in season but every third or so week on the upper body we we would because you know it's easier to recover from and doesn't affect your running so much yeah no that makes complete sense there um so i don't want to go too much longer here i could have i could have a bunch of questions maybe maybe i'll hopefully have you on for part two um, but what what I do want to do is <laughs> what I do want to do is finish up and uh, you know let the listeners know um, where they can reach you um, if you have a website if you're active on any social media platforms uh, if they have any questions beyond what I asked you today. Uh, yeah, uh, my website's uh, uh, www.danbakerstrength.com and uh, they can just. Uh, Email me at uh, danbakerstrength at gmail.com. Um, and I'm on Facebook apparently. Uh, <laughs> Facebook has changed my name. So it's Dan Baker. So I know, I, that a million Dan Bakers. I noticed that. <laughs> I noticed that they, they, they fixed your account for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was Dan Baker Strength Baker just to separate me from the five million other Dan Bakers in the world. Um, but they said, no, I must join the herd. And, uh, so I'm, I'm Dan Baker, same with 25 million other Dan Bakers now. So, All right. But uh, yeah, just if, if you've got a question, uh, a brief question about velocity or stuff like that, yeah, you can send me an email. I'll do my uh, best to uh, answer that for you, for anyone there, for any of your listeners sort of thing. All right, Dan. Well, I want to thank you again. I appreciate your time. Um, and you know, hopefully, again, we'll we'll stay in touch and be on for part two. Yeah, thanks, thanks very much, John. Thanks, Athletic Lab, for uh, the podcast and for uh, uh, hosting me over there. Um, it's, a, it's a great gym. Love to do a workout there next time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'd love to have you again, man. We love to have you. All right, well, same over everyone in Raleigh for me, mate. I uh, will do. Like right to yeah, Raleigh. it's close. Yeah, yeah, that, either one is all right. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.